Hi, and welcome to Viewpoints, a public project inspired by conversations held during the Rural Talks to Rural 2020 conference. The purpose of the program is to engage and promote a variety of perspectives on contemporary and global issues through a rural lens. Each session will run between one hour and one hour and 30 minutes, and will be recorded in front of a live audience. The material will then be edited for the CCRC podcast with highlights from the session posted on Instagram. Tonight, we explore fashion and its impact on the planet, our one and only home. The episode is entitled, Every Snowflake in an Avalanche Pleads Not Guilty. The fashion industry accounts for about 10% of global carbon emissions and nearly 20% of wastewater. Fashion requires more energy than both aviation and shipping combined and is the second largest polluter on the planet. The Nigerian writer Ben Okri wrote, change your story and you might very well change your life. If we can collectively change our story, how might that change positively impact life on our planet? The producer moderator for tonight's program is Yuda Maharaj. The creative team that helped put it together includes Yuda, Lois Anderson, Harveen Sandhu, Bill Dow, Al Lazan, LJ Prabaharan, and Pete Smith. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the very first uh, Viewpoints podcast episode. Um, I'm happy to have everyone here today. Uh, so my name is Yura. I use uh, I go by she, her pronouns, and I am the host for today's exciting conversation on fashion and the environment. So besides being host, um, I am a registered social service worker by credentials, as well as a social and environmental activists, or as I like to say, advocates, which is a combination of both activists and advocate. Um, I'm also really dedicated and passionate um, about bringing awareness and um, amplifying uh, injust social justice issues um, and fighting for a more sustainable future, and in this case, a more sustainable fashion future um, for both people on the planet. And so I'm currently also a project consultant at the Community Climate Council, which is a youth-founded, volunteer-led, nonpartisan environmental nonprofit organization in the region of Peel, which is in Ontario, Canada, or what is currently known as Canada, um, and also a Remake Ambassador. And Remake is a global nonprofit organization dedicated, um, focused on turning fashion to turning fashion to a force for good. So, um, Viewpoints is a radio podcast in part by CCRC, which offers unique perspectives on contemporary and global issues. Each session brings people together from different worlds, uh, different worlds to offer their stories, their experiences, uh, their questions, and their gathered insights on a specific topic. So in today's conversation, we will be focusing on fashion and its industry and its social and environmental impacts. Um, so I will be speaking with two amazing individuals who are passionate and educated on the many different elements that make up fashion and industry, um, and who will also be speaking on um, their experiences and their knowledge and viewpoints 
on the impacts um, that fashion has on both people and the planet and its correlation and causation um, to the climate crisis. And so I also wanna mention that throughout our conversation today, please feel free to write down your comments and your thoughts and questions in the um, chat box below. So before we do begin, I do wanna take this time to respect and acknowledge the traditional and ancestral land that I currently occupy and live on as a settler. Um, in particular, I want to acknowledge the privilege of residing in the hamlets of Inglewood uh, within the town of Cowden, which is in Ontario, Canada, or what is currently known as Canada, which is situated on the ancestral lands of the Pitun and the Haudenosaunee peoples. Pitun are Iroquoian-speaking people um, closely related to the Huron-Wendat. The name Pitun comes from the French, um, uh, which they are known for um, picking tobacco or cultivating tobacco. And in French, um, Pitun is closely translated to tobacco, um, but they themselves like to refer to themselves as Tionantari. Uh, the Haudenosaunee or the Iroquois peoples, uh, which means people who build a house um, or people of the long house are members of a confederacy of indigenous nations known as the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Um, and that consists of Seneca, Koyaga, Anera, um, Anondaga, Mohawk, and Tuscarora, becoming known as the Six Nations. So as a settler on stolen land, um, I grew up not recognizing the importance of learning Indigenous history and the colonization and mass genocide they have experienced in what is currently known as Canada. And it wasn't until um, I became aware of the uh, heaviness and the incomprehensible injustices of the Indigenous communities during my social service worker program, um, which is only a couple of year, years ago at Seneca College. And um, Seneca, the Seneca peoples also happen to be an Indigenous nation, a part of the Haudenosaunee uh, Confederacy. Um, so the more I educated myself, uh, the more curious I became on Canadian history, in specific how our government is supporting um, and upholding Indigenous reconciliation. Um, uh, to which it was followed by disappointment. Um, so I also learned that the colonized history of Indigenous communities is not just a thing of the past. However, it is very much prevalent and alive today. And, um, uh, and social injustices occur every single day in these re remote nations of Indigenous communities. So it's important to me um, and to many others to continue to not only restore justice, but to continually um, work and learn uh, how to uphold Indigenous reconciliation, or sorry, uh, Indigenous um, sovereignty, um, as well as learning how to move past truth and reconciliation and rather actively decolonize our systems and learning how exactly what it means to decolonize our systems and how that looks like, um, but also um, learning how to decolonize our work and our connections with um, our land and, and, and nature and the stewards of the land who came before us. Um, so it's not simply, in my opinion, not enough to passively acknowledge the land that we are on, but to learn and unlearn on how to become better for our land and its people. So I know uh, we may not know or understand the extent of Indigenous history um, and the importance of reconciliation and decolonization, but that is why it is a learning process. And I'm new to this too, and I'm always learning, and it's, it's a journey um, of us connecting with our land and, um, and its inhabitants. Um, and so in my opinion, the first step uh, in doing so is to learn um, what land you are on and learn about the meanings and the history and the culture of Indigenous nations. So 
if you would like that um, to know what land you are on, I will actually put two links in the chat. Um, you can visit uh, native native nativeland.ca. I'll just put it right here for everyone. Um, if you can access that, it would be great. Uh, native slash land.ca or who's dot land forward slash en for English forward slash or just simply research um, on your own, of course, because I think it's also really important um, to find factually based information that's also repeatable. Um, so please also, whenever you are, are able to, please feel free to put down where you are coming from um, in the comment down below. Um, and yeah, so without further ado, um, I will also be introducing you to our guest for today, um, which I'm very sure that you're all excited to hear from um, and learn about their, and later on learn about their um, personal and educational experiences and understandings of the implications and consequences of fashion on our environment um, and how that continues to perpetuate the climate crisis, but also learn about their, um, their personal tips and advice um, and thoughts on how to become better um, consumers to our planet and to our people. So um, I would love to give the, um, the floor to both Anthea and Malika who will be introducing themselves. So please Anthea, um, whenever you're ready, uh, introduce yourselves to our audience listeners. Hi, thank you so much, Yuda. What a beautiful and fulsome acknowledgement of the territories you come from. Thank you for that. I'm coming to you all from North Vancouver on the west coast of Canada, and I live and work on the territories, the existing territories of the Tsleil-Waututh, the Squamish, and the Musqueam peoples who shared these, these areas, the area that I'm upon, and um, reaped its many, many riches. I'm surrounded by berries almost the whole year and very grateful to be here and grateful to have the opportunity to give this acknowledgement because I think it's, it's a new thing for us all and it's a good step forward. So I'm Anthea Mallinson. I'm a dyer, a textile artist and a teacher working in costuming in the film industry in Vancouver, Canada. I have been teaching textile arts since 1988 and I am a founding instructor in Capilano University's 20-year-old costuming for stage and screen program in North Vancouver. I've been working as a key dyer and textile artist in the film industry since 1997, and I'm founder of the Dye Department, a textile arts collective working in film. That's my intro. Malika, over to you. Thank you so much, Anthea and Yuda. So hi guys, I'm Malika and I'm a sustainable fashion blogger and fashion takes action, uh, action news ambassador. So my work involves a lot on styling and uh, looking at uh, waste consumption. And on my blog, I mostly focus on um, educating my followers about the uh, anything about sustainable fashion and bringing light on whatever is happening in the sustainable fashion space and uh, bringing awareness to them. So uh, that was my little introduction. Amazing. Um, thank you both for introducing yourselves to our audience and listeners. Um, don't worry, you're going to hear a lot more from them later on. Um, and I cannot wait to get into it. Um, but before I do, though, I, I thought it'd be great for um, myself to talk about my own um, understandings and connection and viewpoints on fast fashion. 
Um, also, I think it's really important for me to be transparent in the fact that I am in no way an expert in this topic. Um, and I believe we're always learning and unlearning as I previously mentioned. Um, and wherever you are in your journey is where you are meant to be. Um, it is a very nuanced topic and there's a lot of things out there. Um, but the purpose of this conversation uh, is not to guilt trip anyone nor intimidate anyone, rather to make this a learning experience for us all, because I'm gonna be learning a lot um, from both Anthea and Malika, I'm sorry, Malika and, and vice versa. Um, and so I wanna create this um, safe space for all of us to speak on this topic that may be overwhelming, but also perhaps completely new. So um, I do wanna actually start off with a question. Um, it could be rhetorical or please feel free to uh, write it in the chat box, but I wanted to know if, if uh, any of you did, or did you know that the fashion industry is the second largest polluting uh, industry in the world, second to that of the gas and oil industry? I, I don't know about you, but I find that completely alarming and mind blown because it goes to show you how much of an impact um, the fashion industry has on our world. And you wouldn't think that it does because, you know, when we think about fashion, we just think about, you know, going to a shop and putting it on and call it a day. But um, there's so much that goes into it and it, it puts things into perspective and how much, uh, how serious it is on our environments. And the fact that it is the second largest polluter, it makes me very angry and, um, uh, and disappointed, but also betrayed because it also shows you that these businesses and corporations and um, and companies can get away with it. And I, I'm not okay with that. So I, I just wanted to put that out there as a uh, beginning conversation. Um, so also I thought I was thinking about this and I usually when it comes to this topic, I don't really use stats uh, or numbers. And, and it's because I tend to, um, I guess, better comprehend or, or retain information just by experiences or just hearing people's stories. but. I think maybe perhaps um, if people were to hear these um, statistics and numbers, it can um, actually resonate with them or um, they're able to better comprehend it. And so what I'm gonna do actually is state just a few facts because um, it might put things into perspective for you all. So according to Business Insider, fashion production comprises of 10% of total global carbon emissions. Um, so I'm not good at math and um, it's not my strong suit, but I think that's a lot. I, I that's not that's worrisome. Um, it also exhausts our water resources and pollutes our rivers and streams with 85% of all textiles um, going into dumps each year, which is just um, disappointing. Just it's wild to me. Um, and lastly, uh, as majority of our fast fashion clothing is made of synthetic fibers, such as nylons and polyester, which um, if if those of you who know it, it's made of plastic materials. Um, when when these clothing are washed, uh, it releases about 50,000 tons of microfibers in our ocean each year, which ultimately impacts our sea life, our coral reefs, and the entirety of our ecosystem. And for me, this fact really did, um, I guess it was really impactful for me because it made me realize that fashion is not something or the impacts of fashion is not something that's just tangible or tactile or visible to the eye rather it goes um so much more deep than that and 
that's something that we should definitely talk about and, and make um, the forefront of the, our, um, our conversations. So there's far more fact-based information out there that we can go over, but I, I think that will literally take us the entire day. So I won't go uh, more into that. And I'm sure our panelists um, will be speaking on a little bit about this later on. Um, so in terms of just my um, connection with fashion, why do I care about this topic? Um, why is it important to me? So fashion has always been something um, that I enjoyed and I embraced as a younger child. Uh, I use it as a form of self-expression and creativity and a way to express my uh, identity as a woman. And I also actually view fashion as genderless, which um, can be something kind of new to people. Um, but that's what I love about fashion. It's just about how you um, how you relate to it. And so as a teen, I never thought anything of my clothing um, being more than just a, a fashion or trendy item. Uh, and that is until I became um, more interested in, in social justice issues um, and the work that people were doing to advocate on behalf of marginalized communities. And I, I personally felt that that connected with my values and aligned with it. And so um, I started learning more about the value of my own clothing and the, the problematic issues of corporations and businesses I was supporting and that that didn't serve right with me. So um, th through all of that journey or throughout that, that time in my life, I became involved um, with the environmental movement. And so I'm constantly speaking and advocating for climate justice for both people on the planet. And fashion just happens to be something that I, um, I'm very, uh, I guess, dedicated to and, and really passionate about. So I think what's also helped me um, feel more closely and aligned um, with fashion and its impacts is the idea that the things that we support do not only impact ourselves, but the life around us. And in this particular case, supporting the fast fashion industry means demanding more clothing due to trends, which means putting pressure on the supply chain, which means pressuring garment workers to work faster and quicker and thus producing these cheaply made clothing to get to companies quicker, which means allowing uh, factory uh, workers to work in horrible conditions uh, and living on extremely low wages, which means allowing them to, um, allowing the factories actually and corporations to get away with the unjust treatment of workers. So it's really this cycle and this chain that just goes on and on and on and we don't realize the impact of our actions. And so the cheaply made clothing um, that they make or that they produce don't last long, as we know, uh, and due to our throwaway and single use culture, um, people get rid of their clothing by either throwing it away, which please don't, don't throw away your clothing, or they recycle clothing. Which by the way, if you didn't know, um, only, um, or sorry, clothing is not recyclable. Um, it's a, that's another conversation uh, uh, as, a, as a whole, um, but because it is, majority of them is plastic, uh, plastic cannot be recycled more than once or twice. Something about um, the, life, the lifespan is just, to, um, you can only recycle something twice. So yeah, clothing is not recyclable for the most part. And so what happens is that it ends up in our landfills. And even if it's donated, it's also most likely will end up in landfills because only 10% of clothing is actually donated, which is also staggering. Um, and so if the clothing is in landfills and it sits there for a long period of time, what it does, it, 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 it creates greenhouse gas emissions. And 
with that, it creates extreme air pollution. And let's say our clothing ends up in our oceans or in our water systems. It ends up um, creating um, water pollution, but also endangering our sea life. And I guess I won't go too, too much into it, but essentially when it comes to clothing and, um, and, and, and it being in our water systems or in our oceans, um, clothing takes years to biodegrade. And because the clothing is made of microplastics, uh, sorry, plastics, um, the water or it, the clothing will essentially turn into microplastics. And so these little small um, microplastics are consumed by these little fishes. And then the bigger fishes eat the smaller fishes and then the bigger fishes eat the, the fishes. And so essentially when these fishes or sea life consume um, these microplastics, and then we end up consuming the, you know, these, these sea creatures or sea life like fishes, we consume my, um, the plastics then. And then now suddenly our health is declining and we're getting, um, uh, or is declining due to these illnesses and um, diseases. So I, I know it's, it's a very overwhelming fact or thing to think about, but um, that's how I think about it. And it's just, it's really, um, it's really scary and disappointing. And so it, it's this um, constant and vicious cycle that needs to be stopped. So suddenly my thrifting obsession because I love thrifting. I don't know if I mentioned that. I love thrifting. Um, but my thrifting obsession went from passively shopping to consciously and critically being aware of my impacts um, and how my actions have reactions. And then one thing led to another, and I became more uh, passionate and compassionate about advocating for the rights of garment workers who make our clothing and don't make a, de a decent living wage and much more. Um, and then I became uh, a bit more strict with standing ground in, in what I choose to support and put my money to, which meant always researching um, as much as I can the values and sustainability and ethics of a, a store's supply chain when I do shop, or in this case, simply reducing my shopping habits or my shopping consumption and, and um, reframing my shopping um, habits and consuming less in general or just using what I already have and, and upcycling and, and, and being creative with that. So this journey that I'm on right now, um, it's definitely not an easy one and it's one that uh, presents its challenges, but when you value the lives of others and the planet that you are on, it, it kind of essentially becomes instinctual and habitual to use your voice, to use your money and ultimately your privilege to, um, to do good for the to the good, to do good for the good of others. So that's exactly uh, or kind of where I am right now um, on my journey with fashion and um, how I've kind of reframed and uh, be, been more critical with my actions. But I think I've done a lot of talking for now. Um, I am very excited to um, kind of lend the floor to uh, Malika and Anthea to speak on um, their perspectives and experiences with fashion. So please. Um, I will let um, Anthea have the floor. So please, um, Anthea, um, share your story with us. Thank you, Yuda. My goodness. I will first of all, give you a little bit of a background on where my knowledge comes from. And then I want to take you all on a little bit of a journey because I, I feel that textiles as a whole is such an invisible field. So in Vancouver, on the west coast of Canada, there is no textile production and virtually no garment manufacturing. 
So my knowledge of textiles, dyes, history, manufacture, and the textile footprint is knowledge that I have accumulated as a maker and as a researcher teacher in response to finding myself working in a relative void of information and being tasked with teaching others, both my students and in film, my crew. Textiles are so much a part of our lives that they are almost invisible, especially when you live in a part of the world where they are not made. So don't feel bad if you've never thought about this before. And yet we are wrapped in them when we are born, we are wrapped in them when we die, they surround us every day and they are a vehicle of human innovation, invention, science, art, culture, technology, industry, and revolutionary change. The story of textiles is one of extraordinary complexity and impact on human history, our daily lives, and the contemporary human predicament. I wanna take you on a brief historical journey, touching on the depth and enormity of this field and ending with questions about the present day. We know now that working with fibers predates the human use of clay. That's how long our relationship with textiles is. To paraphrase Elizabeth Wayland Barber, author of Women's Work, The First 20,000 Years, about 20 to 30,000 years ago, some genius hit upon the principle of twisting handfuls of little weak fibers together into long, strong thread. Now to quote her, we don't know how early to date this great discovery, but whenever it happened, it opened the door to an enormous array of new ways to save labor and improve the odds of survival, much as the harnessing of steam did for the industrial revolution. Soft, flexible thread of this sort is a necessary prerequisite to, wo to making woven cloth. On a far more basic level, string can be used simply to tie things up, to catch, to hold, to carry, from these notions come snares and fish lines, tethers and leashes, carrying nets, handles and packages, not to mention a way of binding objects together to form more complex tools. So powerful, in fact, a simple string in taming the world to human will and ingenuity that I suspect it to be the unseen weapon that allowed the human race to conquer the earth, that enabled us to move out into every eco-niche on the globe during the Upper Paleolithic. We could call it the string revolution. Imagine being able to lash scaffolding together to reach a cave ceiling, having a wick to keep a lantern burning, nets to fish with and to carry things, snares to catch small animals for ease of hunting. This is technology and this is textiles. Human ingenuity and innovation quickly developed this flexible medium into the foundations of the myriad of uses we see for textiles today. As humans moved around the globe, technical knowledge embedded in fabric structure was exchanged. Knitting, netting, simple weaves, complex weaves, different spinning tools and loom types were invented many places and grew and developed through trade and exchange. Materials innovation also grew as sheep were bred for fleece, linen was finessed into transparent gauze, cotton was selected for its whiteness. The secret of silk was smuggled out of China. Cultural, religious and artistic ideas traveled embedded in imagistic fabrics. It's easier to carry a beautiful brocade ribbon home than a mosaic, <laughs> the human impulse to embellish, which is the fashion impulse, impulse really, 
nurtured the ingenuity of weavers and also of dyers. The dyers were chemists of their day. Sometimes our 20th century hubris has us imagining, and 21st, for those of you who weren't born until the 21st, has us imagining that the pre-industrial world was drab, but this is not the case. Fabric dyeing was a significant industry and a major international trade at least as early as 1250 BCE, when the Phoenicians were harvesting and selling the famous murex purple. Much earlier than that, color and dye processing was being sought and found by peoples all over the world, hand in hand with textile development. The difficult and complex process of extracting and using plant-based indigo blue was discovered in many places around the world. The insect-based carmen dyes were also identified and used in different parts of the world. Kermes in Europe, the famous cochineal from Central and South America, which was as valuable as gold in the days of England's Queen Elizabeth I. Ecological impact is not new in this textiles world. And the pre-industrial days of textile production were not without it. I have two clear examples for you. One is the Tyrian purple industry, coveted by the Romans and Byzantine empires, drove the Aegean murex sea snail to near extinction and came to an abrupt end after the fall of Constantinople in 1204, common era, when no one could muster the financial resources to revive the expensive and failing industry. Failed due to volume, a lesson for us. The European fairy tale of Rumpelstiltskin has been interpreted as a parable, warning of the dangers of the linen industry. This story tells of a woman who boasts to the king that her daughter can spin straw into gold. The king thinks that's great. And if it's true, he'll marry her. And if it isn't true, he'll cut off her head, which seems to be quite a common European formula for princesses. She's locked in a room full of straw along with a spinning wheel and expected to perform this magical task. Of course she cannot and begins to cry when she is interrupted by an odd looking little man who says he can make her a deal. The deal is that he will spin the straw into gold and in return, she will give him her firstborn child. She agrees. This odd little man performs the deed, spins straw into gold for three nights in a row. The king is ecstatic and marries the young woman with no delay. Of course, shortly after the birth of their firstborn child, the strange little man comes to collect his due. The young queen begs for a way out of the deal. The little man says that if she can learn his name in three days, he will let her keep her child. The story ends happily for her because she does learn with the help of a lot of people racing all over the place and working quite hard to figure it out, that his name is Rumpelstiltskin. The ecological interpretation of this story is that the straw is flax, which is hard on farmland. The gold is linen, as linen trade brings great wealth. The firstborn child represents the future, embedded in the health of the land, and the name Rumpelstiltskin represents the knowledge of how to grow and process flax without doing ecological damage. Textile production continued nourishing local and international economies and trade, spurring on technological change, being part of the common and everyday, as well as the decorative, prestigious, and extraordinary. Fast forward to the Industrial Revolution and the transition from hand production methods to machines. Textiles were the dominant industry of the Industrial Revolution. 
every stage of production was examined and eventually mechanized. The spinning jenny was an early key development in the 1760s. The time needed for spinning was slowing the looms down. The invention of this multi-spindle spinning frame was an early example of mechanization. It is immortalized in the poem Fragments by William Butler Yeats. Locke sank into a swoon. The garden died. God took the spinning jenny out of his side. I cannot help but hear this as an ecological dismay in response to the Industrial Revolution. In the early 1800s, the jacquard loom was invented. This loom uses a punch guard system to create very complex weaves and is considered to be the grandparent of the computer. Another very big cause and effect in this realm of textiles, this field of textiles. Synthetic dyes began to be produced in the late 1700s, but the real change occurred in 1856 when the young Englishman William Perkins stumbled on the first of the aniline dyes and it was the color mauve. You might remember the beauty and the coveted uh, wishes for, of the people who wanted purple back in Phoenician times and that love of purple carried forward. And this first aniline dye was this brilliant, brilliant purple called mauve. His discovery had far reaching consequences. It was the first true multi-step synthesis of an organic compound and was quickly followed by many more. By the end of the 19th century, dyers had around 2000 synthetic colors in their repertoire and the chemical dye industry had effectively replaced the millennia old enterprise of extracting dyes from natural sources. The dye trade became the forerunner to an organic chemical enterprise that would eventually produce antibiotics, explosives, perfumes, paints, inks, pesticides, and plastics. The textiles field is huge and has been a great innovator and a great disruptor. Now my very quick overview has almost reached the present day where we cannot imagine not having any color we want and almost any fabric. Ecological awareness started to become a topic of conversation in the 1960s and 70s. I don't know the history of safety regula regulations in the workplace, while there are still issues huge in this respect today, the conversation did start earlier than the mid 20th century. When I cite the 60s and 70s, I'm referring to the growing conversation around the harm to the planet. Dye manufacturers were in pace with human safety and were taking steps to remove dyes that had been proven carcinogenic. But the public conversation about the impact on the planet, the impact of textiles on the planet was almost non-existent, maybe the public conversation about the impact of anything on the planet was almost non-existent. There were tragedies unfolding, such as the loss of the Aral Sea, which began shrinking in the 1960s. The Eastern Basin is now called the Aral Kum Desert. But there wasn't yet a public awareness of the link to textiles through the high water demands of massive cotton crops. However, awareness had begun. For instance, local regulations about chemical waste, which did begin in Victorian times, began to increase. At the same time, fast fashion began to grow. Eventually, in the early 2000s, Greenpeace turned its research lens onto the textile field and published a paper which was an immensely helpful resource for me and laid bare the enormity of the industry, of its complexity, 
of its undeniable global footprint and of the task of addressing the ecological problems embodied within the field. I want to pause for a second to acknowledge that there is another aspect to the problems of the textile field and Yuda, you have touched on it already. And that's the whole issue of labor rights, human rights and labor abuse. That is also a long, deep and current issue and a conversation that I don't want to neglect. It's a parallel train, a very much entwined parallel train. I just am not speaking to that at the moment. Back to the complexity of the textile industry. Supply chain complexity is a topic of conversation amongst manufacturers and retailers as a problem to be solved. I want to describe the, the complexity of the industry in, in simple terms to help the consumer perceive some of the invisible impacts. Cotton, for instance, is grown in many parts of the world. What are the chemical restrictions on crops in the country where the cotton for your summer shirt come from? Did all the cotton in your shirt come from the same place? Where was it spun? Where was it woven? How many shipping trips did it take around the world before it reached the store you found it in? First the crop is shipped, then the yarn is shipped, then the fabric is shipped. When it was woven, what starches or chemicals were used on the warp to keep the looms moving? Was the loom roll of fabric treated with a fungicide before being shipped to the next stop? Where was it dyed? Does the country it was dyed in have effluent regulations? Where were the dyes manufactured? Once it was dyed, was it shipped again? What kinds of finishing chemicals were used as a final touch? Once it reached a manufacturer, who cut the patterns? Who did the sewing and where? Are there workers' rights where it was sewn? If there are, can you know whether or not this job was subcontracted and the workers' rights did not apply? Even Greenpeace, back in 2000, came out of that first study shaking their heads at the complexity of it all. It was going to be difficult to untangle and difficult to measure. But since then, information abounds. You have to get the skills to comb through it all and determine which pieces are true, which are relevant and useful to you. But those skills are evolving too. So what to do? <laughs> to me, the biggest problem is sheer volume. For instance, an ecologically conscious denim producer who sources their raw materials carefully and pays their workers well is understandably pleased that one of their projectile looms can weave 30 million meters of denim per year. With 30 million meters of denim, you can wrap the earth about 750 times. <laughs> like it's kind of mind boggling to think of a statistic like that. However, I do want to emphasize that there is a lot that is encouraging. Local regulations really do make a difference because textiles are a global affair. If a cloth finisher in England finds a forbidden fungicide in the effluent coming from the factory, they will contact the fabric supplier on the other side of the world and demand that that fungicide use be stopped. So think global and act local is what I try to practice. You are still allowed to love and enjoy your clothing and all the other beautiful textiles in your life. The fashion sphere is being examined and challenged and even reinvented. And for more on that, I will sign off and turn it over to Malika. Thank you. That was a very wonderful presentation, Anthea. 
and I will start sharing my screen. Can you guys see it? Just need some yes or no's. Not yet. Oh. Oh, there, yeah. Okay. So hi, and welcome to my presentation, Fashion Climate Crisis. But before I start, oops, let's get personal. So I was born and brought up in India. And um, after uh, when I was 15, I moved to Canada. And uh, the reason I tell you this is because I'm the youngest in my family. And um, in fashion perspective, I, um, I have been, I've grown up wearing hand-me-downs. So for example, I've been, uh, so I've grown up wearing hand-me-downs. So um, also in that sense, um, I, I came up with different ways to style it. And uh, just to, um, so for example, I used to drape a sari over my brother's baggy shirt or mend it, uh, mend my sister's jeans and make them into shorts. So I feel like I've been practicing slow fashion um, since I didn't even know that uh, this uh, sustainable fashion existed. So um, this is where I feel I was at. Now, what can you expect from this presentation? How are fashion and climate related? Fashion is an inevitable uh, part of our lives. Shocking facts about consumption and how can you help make a difference? So I would like to start with a quote first. We are the first generation to understand climate change and last generation to do something about it. So when I came across this quote, it brought a sense of urgency and it kept motivating, uh, it kept motivating me to keep educating myself. Did you know that we have had 12,000 years of stable climate and now we are in the era where we're creating man-made changes to the nature? Nature is our only home. We can't live anywhere else and we really are messing it up. So the man-made construct of climate change is also put against the man-made construct of human inequality. And both of the issues are part of fashion. So I would like to ask you this question. Do you wear clothes? You can just uh, say yes um, or no in the chat. Exactly, so fashion is part of our lives. Each of us wake up every morning and decide what to wear, or if you're ambitious like me, you probably decide before uh, you go to sleep. So now from a government and business perspective, it is a huge contribution to our economies around the world. Did you know it's a three trillion worth of fat? Did you know that three trillion worth of fashion is circulated each year? and a uh, fashion industry employs 50 million people around the world. Fashion affects us all. We can make changes to it on a personal level and on a wider industry level. I'll talk more about this in my last slide. So now some facts I would like to share with you. Just give me a second. 
So when it comes to sustainable fashion, it's not only related to fashion garment, our business, but also changing scale of fashion consumption. Clothing production has been doubled since the year of 2000. And yet 40% of clothes that are, that are brought are rarely, are never been worn. And uh, I, found, I found about this, um, the stat and I was fully blown away that the world now consumes about 80 billion new pieces of clothing every year. And 73% of post-use disposed clothing is eventually incinerated or sent to landfill at the assumed rate of 48 million tons of clothing disposed of every year. That's a terrifying amount, especially compounded over time. And now you, you, must, be, you must be thinking, how is it my fault that these brands are all producing clothes, which is easily accessible to us? Fashion industry is, is also a toxic system that is reliant on, on humans over-consuming. So fast fashion is an industry is a concept that puts speed at its core center. And it's all about trends and making last week fashion old, old fashion. Now, I wanna help you. So how can you help make a difference? First, I would like to say that remember, progress over perfection. You will not achieve that perfect sustainable lifestyle overnight. And just don't give up yet, because to be honest, even, even I haven't achieved that perfect sustainable lifestyle. And, uh, and I'm learning and learning every single day. So just don't give up yet. And uh, these are some of the questions I came up with, uh, which I feel can help you uh, these are some of the questions that I came up with, which I feel can help you to analyze your own wardrobe. And this is where you can even start today. And you can take a screenshot of it or um, whatever you're comfortable with. So can you identify which items you wear the most? How many items per year do you add and remove? What is the most expensive item in your wardrobe? Which item holds the most emotional value and why? Oh, I'll go if you guys want to screenshot this. So you can find me on Instagram, the Fashion Espresso, where fashion is consumed one sip at a time. Thank you so much for attending our presentation. Okay, well, those um, presentations were amazing. Um, what I really loved is that Anthea provided the kind of like the history of the textile industry and, and talked about the past and pulled from the past. And then uh, Malika brought the present day and, and talking about consumerism and sustainable fashion. So I think that's amazing. You both are um, full of knowledge and wealth and I, I absolutely love that. Um, I actually think this would be a great opportunity to, um, I guess, go to the, to the audience or listeners. Um, if you have any questions, um, please put them down in the chat over here so we can, or I can look into it and um, both Anthea and Malika can answer them. I think there was one question that Peter, Peter Smith uh, asked for Malika. So um, Malika, if you don't mind, I'm gonna ask you a question. Can you actually briefly talk about uh, what is happening um, in textiles in India in regards to the making of it? 
Um, I'm going to be honest, I'm not really that aware of textiles in India, but I know that uh, since I've grown up, grown up, I've always seen uh, people around me uh, talking about how dyes have been very bad uh, and cancerous for us. So in terms of, um, especially, so in India, we have cows roaming around freely. And what I've seen, I've seen it through my eyes, and it's painful to watch that, uh, they will take their mouths onto the dyes, um, onto the dyes, um, what is it called, the little thingy, where they will like mix the dyes, and they will drink it without even knowing. They, they'll think it's water, but it's actually a dye. So, and I've heard like news like new stuff like that. I'm not really aware of that, but this is just a personal experience that uh, I went through, and it was it was horrifying to see. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I mean, hearing that, I I'm really sensitive to hearing animal like cruelty in any sort. So that's just disappointing, and um, that's horrible. Um, let's see if we have any other questions. Uh, okay, so Brian ask a question and please Anthea and um, Malika if you want to answer by all means do um, he, he asks what happens to garment makers when we reduce our consumption I think that's an interesting question I think that's one of that's one of the things that um, keeps me up at night actually <laughs> so there, there's I, I from a kind of idealistic, if I could, you know, rule the world point of view, I would want to um, have the garment makers slow down and get paid more and make things that are a higher quality and have the consumers persuade themselves to purchase higher end garments less often. But absolutely, um, what is going to happen to the garment we, workers as we slow down our consumption is a question that needs to be considered. However, I think that in some ways, like increased mechanization has already in the past thrown us into situations where workers no longer have their um, jobs. And so we need to look at the past when this has happened before. Like when I, when I talked about the, the dye synthesization, when they synthesized indigo, there was massive famine in India because all of a sudden the indigo farmer's product wasn't needed. And, um, and so it, it, this, this is a problem. And I know that there are real scholars looking at labor inequity around the planet and um, specifically at textiles, but also around the whole planet. And it's, I, I don't have an answer. I'm glad you're asking that kind of question. I don't have an answer. And honestly, I actually, I think these questions um, are very important and valid. And I don't think it's, I think it's okay to not have the answer because we may not have the answer for a lot of these questions. Um, I think the great thing is these questions can challenge our beliefs and, and make us think. And I've never really thought about it um, in that way, which is something that I'm kind of shocked because I think about um, you know the livelihoods of garment workers, but to know if you know based on our our actions, if we start stop consuming less and, and 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 not demanding as much clothing, what happens to the workers who make these clothing? So that's a, a great question and one that I think um, will also leave me <laughs> up at night thinking. But um, maybe we can, I guess, leave this um, kind of 
say something. Sorry. Oh, for sure. No, go ahead. So I feel uh, when what happens at Garmin Work is when we reduce our consumption. I feel even even right now. I mean, even when we uh, reduce our consumption, it's gonna get a lot better. That's just my opinion because right now, even if you see, they're not even making living wage. They're just making minimum wage. I think they make thirty three cents or uh, something. So I'm not just don't quote on me, but I I think they make thirty three cents. So I feel when we when we actually start reducing the consumption there will be a lot of um, transparency in supply chains and sub supply chains so um i think it will be better for workers and not like i know a lot of people that I talk to they're like oh you know why why should we um not shop fast fashion we're kind of um helping the helping the workers to make money that's 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 totally wrong because um we're not really helping workers we're just helping those billionaires making more money and money those workers are not getting even paid properly so i feel um it's not gonna it's gonna help those workers even more because the less the consumption the more people can look at the transparency and um and uh help workers and maybe you know they can actually start getting paid even more totally agree with you yeah it's definitely um it's a very subjective conversation as well to have because um, people will challenge it and see other ways, but good point, uh, Malika. Um, okay, there's a lot of questions in the chat. Um, let's see. Um, okay, I, I kind of like this question. Um, what, do, what do you think is the most sustainable, um, what do you think is the most sustainable cloth or fabric out there? Maybe Anthony can answer that, I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, the most sustainable new cloth? I, I think I favor hemp, um, but you really, it's, it's a really complex, you really have to look at all the complexities of it because um, I have heard that hemp uh, is less hard on the land than linen, um, but all of the bast fibers, that's any fiber that comes from the stem of a plant, nettles, linen, hemp, uh, they they need processing, so you have to make sure that the processing, like nowadays when you buy linen, inexpensive linen, it pills on the surface. If you bought Irish linen, it would never, ever, ever pill on the surface, and that's because it's been chopped up and chemically melted more quickly than the old ways of processing linen. So my, my quick answer is hemp. But you, you need to, you just always need to know that there's complexity to the story. Um, for me, the, sustain, the most sustainable fashion, uh, most sustainable cloth is your own wardrobe or even your mom's wardrobe or your dad's wardrobe. How I've, um, I know it's, um, it's not as specific to um, Anthea, but uh, what in my personal experience that um, how I go about it. So right now I'm in India and um, I've been doing a lot of tailor, like I've, so we have tailors available, like it's very easy available here. So what I do is like, I go to my mom's wardrobe and uh, I see if she has any extra cloth. And um, I feel that's the most sustainable because that's literally in my house and I'm, you know, finding ways to repurpose it or like try to make something out of it. So the most sustainable cloth is going to be in your house. Just you have to look for it. I, I have to agree, completely agree completely. So if you already own some polyester, use it. It's going to last forever. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
no, I love that. That's that's a great way to a great perspective on that question, uh, Malika. Um, I actually I have a I have a question, and it's kind of like a two part question. Um, I will start off with the one that was just presented to us in the chat by Katie. Um, in terms of the current industry right now with fast fashion, um, and just, you know we see a lot of um, a lot of fast fashion brands like H and M and others <laughs> that are trying to you know uh, establish more um, sustainable efforts, which in my opinion is not sustainable. Um, but I guess my question or uh, Katie's question is, what do you feel will advance sustainability in the fashion industry? So it doesn't have to be, because um, when, it, when, it, when, it, when we say the word fashion, it, it can be fast fashion, it could be sustainable fashion or ethical fashion, which is a different question I can ask as well. But what do you think will advance um, sustainability in the fashion industry today? Which one of us? I, 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 feel, I feel a tiny bit disengaged from fashion. I don't actually buy a lot of clothes and I'm always thinking of clothing in terms of costumes, you know, so, so they're part of a story. Um, but I think if I thought, I think education, I think education, I think there's still a lack of awareness of the amazing field of textiles and the enormity and the complexity. So probably just education. Very true. Um, Sorry, Malika, yeah. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, 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 it's the floor is yours. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what do you feel will advance sustainability in the fashion industry? That's a question, right? Um, I feel, I don't have any um, specific answer to this, but I feel people need to realize that sustainable fashion is not something you can buy into. It's more of a mindset. It's more of a lifestyle you can create. So, uh, and also being sustainable, I feel it opens such creative doors to us. So we have to like, in, in point of like cultural context, we have to understand that um, this is something to also look forward to. So uh, what with something advanced sustainability in the fashion industry, we have to start looking sustainable as sustainable fashion as in more of like, how we can be more creative, how can we be more innovative with whatever we already have. I agree 100%. And I think it all it also comes down to, like you said, sustainability is a mindset. Um, we, sustainability is not something you buy into. Um, it's the it's the idea of having longevity and, and, and actually having a relationship with our clothing. That's first and foremost, the most important thing, the way I see fashion. Um, and that kind of goes into, um, I guess, the two parter, parter uh, questions that I have personally. Do you think that uh, fast fashion can ever be sustainable? Um, fast fashion can be sustainable but not ethical. So two different parts. Um, I was, to be, I'm going to be super transparent. Um, I used to be a fast fashion lover. Literally, I would go to Zara, H&M. And um, so I feel, and like, I still possess those clothes. I'm like, you know, it's not something like when I learned about sustainable fashion, I threw all those clothes. That will be unsustainable of me. So I feel 
yes and it's it's kind of a complex question so yes it can be sustainable if you really keep those clothes if you really take care of them if you really you know read those laundry labels because uh we tend to kind of ignore that sometimes and we just like throw them in our uh, washing machine and dryer and then we don't kind of think about it because we only think oh yeah it's cheap and disposable I can just go buy next and next so I feel um, if we like keep them love them as we like uh, just like how we invest into uh, luxury luxury clothes so I feel like um, yes it can be but ethically never never there's a long way to go mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and I think this question is definitely um, a very complex one because um, the great thing about these conversations is that we all have different perspectives. And I remember this question was proposed to me um, on a conversation I had with somebody else. And I would have to say that um, fast fashion can never be sustainable. And and I and and I'll explain because fast fashion in the name itself means rapid. It means um, it's it's in demand. It's it's something that's always going. So if fast fashion means immediacy and and demand, then no matter what it is, if the clothing is made from sustainable materials and it's made um, using less energy or water, it, it comes down to the garment workers. So if who's making them? You know, the garment workers are making these clothing, and they're definitely not being treated. Uh, properly, they're working in horrible conditions and not getting paid enough. So the reason why I asked is because H&M has come out with this new sustainable uh, line and, you know, and it's great that they're making efforts, but the efforts kind of go unnoticed or kind of by or just isn't as valuable because it is 100% greenwashing because as long as a fast fashion, fast fashion brand um, is creating the sustainable clothing or quote unquote sustainable, it is not sustainable. And I agree with you that it is not ethical because I know you mentioned the ethical um, component of that, which means um, that the people who are making it, you know, I understand that. But I think it's really, really, really important to um, kind of understand the nuance of what that meant. If I, the question fast fashion or the, 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 um, the terminology fast fashion immediately uh, erases sustainability. And I know, and I, and I think it's such an important thing to talk about because um, I, I see a lot of misconceptions, but we really def we definitely need to reframe uh, what we think about sustainability with fast fashion. Those two words don't go together in my opinion, but um, I love that you mentioned that Malika because this is you know all about our learning opportunities. And I, I, I agree with you. I didn't, I thought it could be sustainable, but you know, we are always learning. And so um, I just wanted to put that out there too, but I'm just reading the comments down here. Yeah. I, um, I agree with you in some parts and um, like, especially when it comes to H&M, they're always greenwashing us. And it's such an unfortunate part because people who are in the industry, like sustainable fashion space, they know what, uh, what these brands are doing, but people who are not, they don't, they just buy into it. Right. <clears throat> so I feel, um, and also like, I've uh, been to, like, I've been to Zara and I've always seen these like little donation boxes and it's so little, it's so tiny and it doesn't make sense sometimes because uh, they're trying to make an effort, but like, and it's so like, it's so hidden, like you have to look for it. It's not like they advertise it, you know, as much as it can. And also, um, yes, they uh, like, you know, they overproduce their clothes a lot. And like, 
So let's say like H&M, they're talking, they're talking sustainable fashion, but what's the point? Because they every single week, they're making new fashion, new trends. So that's when the ethical part comes in. Exactly, I agree, I agree, I agree with you, um, Malika. Um, okay, so I do have another question. Maybe um, Anthea can uh, provide her input as well. Because um, I know you you talked about the textile industry and the history of our fabrics, um, and of course Malika has her her her, um, her present day and and um, her work in sustainable fashion online. So I'm just I just is an open conversation, an open question. Do you think anything has changed since ten years ago, or since 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 um, you know fast fashion has become this? this like consumerist and, and capitalist um, ideology to where we are now. Has there been changes? And if so, um, have they been good changes? Good changes? I think there have been significant changes. I think that capitalism is a very powerful and fast moving train <laughs> and it's gonna take a while to shift it. But, you know, there have been a lot of ecological regulations in the European Union that changed what dyes could be manufactured, that changed what dyes could be used. That happened a long, like a long time ago now, like in the 90s, there was something called the German hit list where they wouldn't allow um, these textiles to be imported into Europe that had been dyed with certain dyes. So, so all those dyes just stopped being manufactured. And that was, that was just a blink. And uh, I know like the, the um, regulations as like, like my example earlier, like if a regulation crops up somewhere, um, it has an effect around the whole supply chain. So it has an effect around the whole world. And those regulations, I've, I've really only been watching the European Union. So I don't really know about the whole planet, but it influences the whole planet. So the, those regulations have been increasing and increasing. And um, awareness like organic cotton didn't even used to exist and um awareness of what 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 uh, uh, even this conversation today you know is a conversation that i think wouldn't have been held there's still uh, a lot more awareness needs to be spread but there are conversations there are um uh, resources that you can access to find out who's doing what. There is even a conversation about H&M and Zara having any kind of accountability, even a conversation that a consumer can get to that information. Like when Greenpeace did that first study in 2000, you couldn't get any of that information. So you didn't even have the power to make a choice because you couldn't get at the information. So I think that all of these things are very powerful and very hopeful. And, and, and we do know that ecological focus can help. The Thames River in the 60s was declared dead and it's not dead at the moment. So there is the possibility of, of repair. Very true, I love that. Um, that was really insightful. Um, so I'm looking at the time, we have 20 minutes left. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there's so many other things to touch on. And um, like I said at the beginning, this, this is a conversation that, um, you know, we, we, we can begin here, but continue to have after this, um, this, this episode or this podcast. So 
Um, I'm going to just see if there's any other questions that people have that they're just curious about, maybe learning more about both yourself, Anthea, and Malika. Um, and if not, then I guess we can wrap it up a little bit. Um, I did have another question, but I think it may be um, a bit too long and uh, I don't want to you know, how I, I it's for here, it's nine, it's nine eleven, uh, nine eleven PM and where I am right now in Canada. So I don't want to go on for too, too long, but if anyone has any other comments or questions, please feel free to, to leave them right now. Um, let's see. Okay. You know what? Um, I'm going to ask one more question. <laughs> um, it's from Harveen and she would like to know, um, both either your thoughts on the aspect of fashion, the fashion industry and animal products. So leather, fur, wool, um, and how that can, is connected to animal agriculture. Um, and of course that emits um, carbon. And yeah, so if, if either of you are able to answer that or have any thoughts on that, let me know, feel free to just chat. I can go first, but I bet you have some good thoughts too, Malika. So I'll just say briefly, I, I think that wool is actually um, quite a sustainable fiber. I think that it's been analyzed and acknowledged as sustainable um, in a, quite ecological in a lot of different ways because um, you don't need pesticides and herbicides and uh, uh, wool is, um, you don't need as much, it, it, Processing wool, the dyes are very efficient. You have less uh, dye runoff when you're dyeing wool and you don't need as many chemical treatments to give it a sheen. For instance, polished wool is polished by having it be run over top of a piece of hard wood. Wool loves wood. You polish wool by running it over wood. So there's there's less chemical involvement in wool. So I think wool is a is a really good fiber. I think that leather. I am a supporter of leather as a byproduct of the of the food industry. I feel that it, the human human beings still eat meat, and using the skins for leather is better than throwing them away or trying to compost them or trying to put them through a garbage system. So that's my feeling about leather. So in, in terms of, um, and I agree with you, Anthea, about the, about the rule. So uh, one thing I did learn the other day that, and I was kind of shocked because I've grown up seeing my, um, I seen my mom wearing cashmere, that cashmere is actually not sustainable as we think. Uh, so um, it's because I think it's mo mostly because now these days cashmere is so readily available and it's uh, now it's cheaply, cheaply made. So another uh, sustainable, um, more like animal product I came across, alpaca, alpaca wool. And I was shook because I never thought about it, but it is, uh, generally the most sustainable and I feel um, and it's really soft like it will genuinely keep you warm and you don't have to feel bad about it because the process of it it's not there uh, because alpacas shed a lot in general so in order rather than throwing that whatever they're shedding it's actually it's good that they're using that into making you know sweaters or uh, more of that so I feel alpaca wool is something I've learned that's more sustainable in terms of animal product. 
I'm just writing a little note in the chat um, about a rare, a, a, a rare fiber called kiviat, Canada's own fiber <laughs> that comes from the muskox. And that would be a bit like the alpaca because the muskox sheds this underhair every year. And the, the Inuit up in the north used to have um, big wooden, big, I guess they didn't have wood, they didn't have very much wood, but they would put spiky things out so that the muskox would come and rub their backs because they were getting all itchy because they were trying to shed the fur, the hairs, and they would, they would rub against these sharp things and then the Inuit would go and gather the muskox fur. And now um, there's wild muskox that are sort of semi-tame and they pull it away. And the kiviat is warmer even than cashmere and probably similar to alpaca in that way. But of course, it's a tiny, tiny market. It can't go replacing all the cheap cashmere that we consume all over the world. That's so if there were Kiviet sweaters, Peter, they would be very expensive. <laughs> I bet you can order them. I think you can order socks and mittens. That, is, that is so cool. This is like new information to me. I, I'm not too versed in, um, I guess like animal fur and production, but um, thank you both for, for providing your insight on that. Um, so it looks like that is all we have for tonight. Um, it definitely has been a fruitful conversation. Um, and although, you know, we talked about many different elements uh, and intersections of the fashion industry, um, I actually will leave one, one resource here for any of you who are interested in um, learning about the ethics um, with for, for garment workers um, at Remake. Uh, they do uh, amazing work um, uh, focusing on turning fashion for, for, for a force of good. And right now they have a campaign called No New Clothes. Um, maybe that's something of interest to, um, to those of you who want to kind of reevaluate your relationship with clothing. So um, yes, and fashion takes action. Um, please feel free to put that in the chat, Malika. Um, amazing organization, organization as well, and they're Canadian based. So um, yeah, so I hope this, this conversation was um, informative for you all. Um, uh, I know that it can be very overwhelming, like I said, and um, I guess that's okay. And because these conversations, they start here for some of us or they continue um, for some of us, and then it's, it, it, um, continues beyond this space. And so I hope that this is um, something that you can continue to think of and reflect and, and be more critical of in your life. Um, so I also wanna take this time to thank Peter from CCRC who organized this amazing live podcast and for gave, giving myself and um, Anthea and Malika this space to talk about um, and, you know important issues and causes and specific um, the fashion industry. So. Um, uh, I think it was amazing hearing both Mal uh, Malika and Anthea's stories. Um, oh, and Peter is leaving. He's saying, so on June 27th, please come back um, for another episode of um, Viewpoints, which will be focused on Indigenous perspectives on the climate, which I'm very much looking forward to. Um, so thank you both, uh, Anthea and Malika, for providing your time, your energy, your knowledge, and of course, your viewpoints on fashion and its impact on the environment. So thank you everyone and have a good night. Thank, thank you, you so everybody. much everyone. Thank you, Yuda. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'd like to invite you back for future episodes. 
Next up will be Indigenous Perspectives on the Climate Crisis, and that is on Thursday, June 27th. We invite your comments, questions, and feedback sent to info at ruralcreativity.ca. Stay safe, be kind to each other and to the earth, and we look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you.